If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 145. Psalm 145, we're going to continue looking at the attributes of God. And this morning, we're going to focus on the righteousness of God. So far, as we've been going through the psalm, we've been picking out um, different attributes. As this psalm is loaded with attributes, as David writes this psalm, he is praising God, and he is praising God primarily for his attributes, who he is and what he has done. And we have learned last week that all the attributes of God are kind of mixed up. Um, they're all overlapping. They're kind of like a big bowl of vegetable soup or after it cooks all day, they kind of all the flavors kind of blend in with one another. And uh, that is certainly true of the righteousness of God. But when we look at God, we need to realize that God isn't... In pieces, even though we're looking at him in pieces, um, if uh, you know somebody has an arm, that's part of them. But if you take the arm off of them, it's no longer them. Um, it's got to be attached. And so we are looking at d- different attributes of God, but we need to realize that um, these attributes are part of a whole, and all of the attributes of God function simultaneously, all at one time, together, infinitely. And that's hard for us to understand because in our, our experience as finite creatures, we are happy or sad. You know, we are angry or joyful. We tend to be one way or the other. Uh, sometimes we're obeying God and other times we not, might not obey God. We do one thing and not the other. We tend to pendulum two different ways of, of being, it seems. But with God, he is all the things that he is all the time to an infinite degree. He is never less than anything. He is all things to infinity that are essential to his attribute. And what's difficult to grasp is how could God be a just and holy God executing wrath in perfection on sin, and yet at the same time be gracious and merciful and compassionate and loving. God is perfectly just and he is perfectly righteous, and yet he is perfectly gracious and perfectly merciful. He never changes. He is always the same all the time. He is the unchanging, what is called the immutable God. And all of his attributes make up all that he is. Picture in your mind a really nice table. Recently, um, we went to Hearst Castle and um, up the coast, and we saw some really incredible furniture there. And, and picture in your mind, you know, a, a really elaborate table, maybe from, you know, the... Uh, King Louis the Fourteenth Dynasty or something, um, just a really gorgeous table. Maybe it's polished top. It has you know Capthenian elm burl inlay in the top, and the rest is black walnut. And the legs are kind of carved, and the sides are carved, and it's got a little gold leaf in it. It's a very beautiful table. And then you have some artists come in, uh, maybe ten, twelve, fifteen artists come in uh, to draw a picture of that table, just like they like to draw pictures of me when I'm preaching. Um, We won't mention any names. Um, I have faithful people draw pictures of me when I'm preaching, and I mentioned that the first service, and so somebody drew 
a stick man behind a pulpit saying, read your Bible. Um, (laughs) I've got it here. I'll hang it up when I get home. But picture in your mind all these people coming to draw a picture of this very elaborate table. And so what you do is you tell one of the artists, I want you to lie down underneath the table and look up and draw a picture of it. You tell another person, I want you to stand on the table, look down and draw a picture. Another person to sit in front of the table. Another person to sit back and to the side of the table. Another person to um, sit in, uh, off to just one side, the left side, a few feet away. And all of these artists are all around this table and they're all drawing the table as they see it. Now, after they all draw their pictures... Do all of those pictures look identical? Well, no. No, they don't. Why? Because they're all looking at the table from a different perspective, from a different distance. They all have a unique perspective on the table. The man on the floor, he looks up and sees a very dark, unfinished, and ugly table. The person who is standing on the top sees the table as a a rectangle polished with sculpted edges. The person sitting in front of it sees it as a trapezoid with the legs in the rear being a little closer, a little shorter, the front legs being a little farther apart, a little taller. The man who is back and off to the side quite a distance, he sees it as a very small trapezoid. And so they all draw what they're looking at, what they're seeing of that table. And every picture is different. Even though the table is the same. The table has not changed in size. The table has not changed in density. The materials of the table are still the same. And yet every picture is different. And what is interesting is if you were to show the collection of pictures to somebody, they would look at them and say, these are all pictures of the same table, even though every picture is different. Well, then the same way, when you come to study God, you begin to realize that the scriptures portray God from many different angles, many different perspectives. And when you look at individual pictures of God, you will see him one way, and then when you look at God from another perspective in another text, you will see him a different way. For instance, a person that is in rebellion against God, an unbeliever who has never submitted their life to Jesus Christ, who is living in hatred and hostility towards God, that person is like the man who lies under the table and he sees God as dark and ugly. Because God's wrath abides on him. But the person who has repented and who has placed their faith in Jesus Christ and who has found forgiveness in Christ, he is like the man who is maybe sitting, standing on top of the table. He sees God as very beautiful, very, very smooth and kind and gracious. And so depending on how we are in relationship to God or the situations that God has presented to us in the scriptures, paint God in a different way. But God does not change. He never changes. He is the Lord, Malachi 3.6 says, that changes not. In Numbers chapter 23.19, 
Moses writes, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? And the implied answer to those is, of course, God doesn't repent. Of course, if God says he's going to do it, he will. God is perfectly faithful to execute his promises. In Hebrews 13.8, it's speaking of Christ. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In James 1.17, James speaks of the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Never changes. Now... There has been a problem in the church today, and it's growing, and so I thought I would just spend some time on this because it does relate directly to the attribute of God's righteousness. And that is a new heresy that is arising today that says God is not sovereign. God is not in control. As a matter of fact, God is evolving. He is changing. It's kind of evolution applied to God. Where God is reacting a victim to circumstance. He is not declaring the end from the beginning. He has not decreed whatsoever will come to pass. Those prophecies, all the prophecies in the Bible that happened to come true, happened because of chance. And this heresy is called the openness of God theology, and many churches in America are preaching and teaching that it's true. As a matter of fact, you can go down to your average Christian bookstore today and find books that teach it. And it is a heresy that really ungods God. Because it makes everything that happens the result of chance. It's evolution applied to God. And it is a certain brand of theology taken to its extreme, Arminian theology. And I do not mean by that to have anything to do with Armenians. Uh, One time I, I mentioned Arminian theology and someone came up of Armenian descent was quite disturbed and wanted to know what was wrong with Armenians. <laughs> I said, well, nothing. And they said, well, you talked about the, uh, us as being wrong. And I said, oh, you mean Arminius, Jacobus Arminius and his theology. And then they said, oh. So we were talking about Jacobus Arminius. He was a man who... At the time, John Calvin was writing his institutes and, and working on his systematic theology. Jacobus Arminius kind of took the opposite view of, of Calvin, where Calvin uh, presented God as absolutely sovereign, as the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who is, who is causing all things to work out towards his predestined purpose who is able to declare things before they happen, to prophesy the future and have it come to pass perfectly. Jacobus Arminius taught and emphasized more the autonomy and will of man, that man is kind of the determiner of his own destiny, that he is able to choose God and then God reacts to man's choice. And so when you take that theology and take it to its extreme, that God is not at all in control, that he is not at all sovereign, that he is totally in reaction mode, doing his best to try and achieve his will, but who knows whether he will or not, then you come to the openness of God theology. Now you ask yourself, well, Jack, in light of those verses that you just read, 
how is it that somebody could say something like that? I mean, after all of those messages we heard on the sovereignty of God and his decree and his will and providence, I mean, how could you say something like that? Well, I couldn't, but they do. And they get it from texts like Exodus 32:14. And in that text, the people have fallen into sin and God is going to send a plague upon them to wipe them out. He's so fed up with them. But Moses, the leader of the people, comes before God, humbles himself, intercedes with prayer. And this is what we read in Exodus 32, 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. And he didn't send the plague. In Amos chapter 7, verse 3 and verse 6, God sends um, a plague upon Israel. Or promises a plague upon Israel. But the problem is Amos the prophet intercedes and says, you know, Lord, please don't do this. And he humbles himself and he repents and confesses on behalf of the people. You know what the text says twice? The Lord changed his mind about this and said, it shall not be. You remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was the preacher who took the first submarine ride, spit up on the beach. But, but Jonah, remember, was told to go to Nineveh, those were Israel's enemies, and to come to them and preach that in three days, Nineveh would be overthrown. Remember he said that? And do you remember why Jonah didn't want to do that? He didn't want to do that because he was fearful that the Ninevites, there might be a small, minuscule chance that they might repent. And guess what? They did. And guess what? Jonah 3.10 says, When the Lord saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented or repented concerning the calamity which he had declared that he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And the openness of God, people would say, See? Right there. God promised to destroy them, and then he changed his mind. He's in reaction mode. Now, how do you deal with texts like that when Numbers 23.10 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent, or I am the Lord, Micah, or Malachi 3.6, who changes not, when we just read texts that says he, he does change and he did repent or relent. See, this is a problem. And a lot of people don't know how to deal with it, and so I just want to address it this morning because it's going to figure right into the righteousness of God and in the weeks to come, the justice of God and the holiness of God. Now, first of all, when you look at all the scriptures that seem to show God changing, what you need to do is you need to look at the context. We don't go through the scriptures and just snatch out little verses that we build into a theology. You know, like... Judas went out and hung himself. Go thou and do likewise. What thou doest, do us quickly. So we all run out and hang ourselves. You see, that the Bible says that, right? The problem is, is it says it in different places, in different contexts, and so we don't assemble verses out of their context to make them into something we want to say. No, we go to the passages where they occur and find out what God meant for them to say. And guess what you discover? 
When you go to all those passages that talk about God relenting or repenting or changing his mind, what you discover is in every one of those passages, right before it says that about God, something else happens. The people repent. You see, this is what you need to understand. God is constant. And if you are in rebellion against God, the scriptures say God will by no means allow the guilty to go unpunished. But you confess your sins to God, you repent and turn from your wicked way, and what happens? You put yourself into a position to see God in a different light. And what light is that now? Instead of lying on the ground underneath his wrath, now you get to see his grace and mercy and forgiveness because God is abundant in loving kindness. Great in mercy. We saw that last week and the week before that as we looked at the grace and mercy of God and how he delights in unfailing love towards people. But he's still just, so he has to execute justice. So if you are in a state of high-handed rebellion against God as an unbeliever, God's wrath abides on you, like John 3.36 says. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but God's wrath continually abides upon him. But if you confess your sins, repent, believe the gospel that Christ died on the cross for your sins, that he was crucified, buried, and rose again on the third day, you trust totally in Christ to save you from your sins, then God extends perfect forgiveness, abundant grace upon grace, saving mercy so that you can be saved. The same unchanging God, and what has changed is our position or relationship to him. That's why we see him different. When Nineveh was in high-handed rebellion, they were getting the axe. They repented, mercy. People of Israel, high-handed rebellion, the axe. Moses repents on behalf of them. The people humble themselves, mercy. Same with Amos. Same in Numbers. You go through, you find this over and over again. God is not changing. He is the Lord who changes not. Let me just give you an example of this. I think one of the greatest examples of this is salvation. Salvation. Now think about this. What does the Bible say about salvation? Well, it says things in some places like, In him you were chosen before the foundation of the world, predestined according to his purpose. We read things like that in Ephesians 1 and 1 Peter 1 and Romans 8. 29 through 31, that God has predestined people. We see it in Acts 13, 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believe that God before the foundation of the world has chosen certain people to be saved, to be redeemed by the blood of Christ. That is from God's perspective. And from God's perspective, you also see scriptures that say things like this. Like Romans 3.10, there are none who seek after God, not even one. Or John 3.19, where it says, And the wicked do not come to the light, because they love darkness rather than light, for their deeds are evil, and they're afraid their deeds might be exposed, so they don't come to the light. Or 1 Corinthians 2.14, where it talks about men 
not being able to understand the things of God because they are spiritually dead and the word of God is spiritually appraised so they cannot understand them. Or Ephesians 2 when it says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you're walking spiritual corpses. So we have these statements from God's perspective that men are hopelessly lost, running away from the light, running away from the truth. They hate the light. They hate Christ. They don't want to submit to God. There's none who seek him. God's perspective. Then we have man's perspective. And scriptures addressed to men. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him turn to our God for he will have compassion on him. And to our God for he will abundantly pardon. What's that? What is this? And if you seek me, you will find me. If you seek for me with your whole heart. Well, I thought the scriptures say no one seeks God. From whose perspective? God looks at men and he knows they aren't going to seek him. But then we have all these commands to repent and believe and to receive Jesus Christ. What is that? And then what's really disturbing is this. For those of you who know Jesus Christ, you sought God, didn't you? I mean, some of you can't remember because maybe you were little. But a lot of you who came to Christ later on in life, all you know from your experience is that there was a day when all of a sudden you started getting an interest in God. Maybe something happened in your life or somebody talked to you or whatever. But you started craving God and thinking about God. And maybe somebody came into your life and shared the gospel. And you started to um, think about it and you became more interested. And pretty soon you, you understood the gospel. And you gave your life to Christ and from your perspective, hey, listen, I sought God and I found him. I believed and I was saved. Is that true? Of course it is. So how do you justify those two? Well, what you need to realize is the scriptures speak of God from different perspectives. From God's perspective, you're hopelessly lost, you're blind to the truth, you're walking spiritual corpses as Paul paints it in in Ephesians 2, and you don't see God. You You are dead in your transgresses and sins, how Paul phrases it. But then what happens from God's perspective is that God then reaches down into people's lives whom he has chosen. And the scriptures talk about him drawing people to himself of giving them grace, of giving them mercy, of granting them to repentance so they can believe, of bringing people into their life by his providence to share the gospel. And those people are able to see the gospel and understand the gospel and they believe and are saved and are changed. But you know what? From their perspective, because they don't know what God is doing, they don't know God very much, they're, they're baby Christians, all they know from their perspective is, I started thinking about God, and I started getting interested in God, and this person shared with me the gospel, and I understood it, and I believed, and now I'm saved. So I saw God, found him, and that's how it is. But then when they begin to study the scriptures, they discover why they sought God. It's because God sought them out first. The shepherd is the one who seeks after sheep. Sheep don't seek the shepherd. So the shepherd goes out, he finds those. So is it true that there are none who seek after God? Yes. All men are in that position. Is it true that men seek after God? Yes. Who? Those that God gives the grace to and draws to himself. And so as you look at the scriptures, you can see God in two different ways. Now, with that, we come to the righteousness of God.
And when we come to the righteousness of God, we see this in verse 7 and verse 17 of Psalm 145. And this morning we want to look at three facts concerning the righteousness of God. First, the fact that your God is righteous. Secondly, that your God's deeds are righteous. And third, how you should live in light of God's righteousness. Look at verse 7. Notice what it says there. The psalmist says, They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Now right there, we have, we've already looked at the first part of the, book, the verse when we looked at the goodness of God. But the second part of the verse, it says, And will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Now, what is this word righteousness? Well, the righteousness of God describes several things. It's a Hebrew word, uh, tzaddik, and the verb, or tzaddikah, which is the the noun form. And, And what it describes, and it's almost always translated either justice or righteousness. Those two words, which at first seem kind of strange. Justice seems like, you know, something kind of harsh, and righteousness kind of seems like something pure, And a lot of Christians don't understand that justice is actually an expression of righteousness. Depending on what perspective you have, when you look at the scriptures, you see justice used in in different ways. And there's three basic ways that justice or righteousness is used. One way is this. One way it talks about God's perfect compliance to his moral will or nature. That is, God never contradicts himself. He's in perfect compliance. He does what is right according to his own nature. That's one way it's used. Here's another way. God abstains from all sin and is perfectly obedient. He is separate from sin. And what do you call that when God's separate from sin? Holiness. So in that way... Righteousness is expressed as holiness. But when it comes to God deciding between good and evil, or specifically when it comes to the righteousness of God applied to people who are in sin and rebellion against him, then it's justice. And so when you look at the righteousness of God, you find out that it is God's perfect compliance, God's perfect abstinence, and God's perfect dealing with those who are in sin. And that's how we see it in the scriptures. Now, since we're going to spend a whole message on the holiness of God and a whole message on the justice of God, this morning we want to look at God's perfect rightness, his always doing what is right according to his nature. And what's interesting is when you look at the scriptures, you often find God's righteousness spoken of. And when I was going through and I was looking at these verses, I saw all three aspects of God's righteousness in a particular verse in Revelation 16.5. Let me just read it to you. See if you can find his perfectly right doing, his abstinence from sin or holiness, and his justice in this one verse. This is when the angel of the waters cries out to God saying, quote, Righteous are you, that is doing right, who are... And who were, O Holy One, separate from sin, because you judged these things. The determination of God's righteousness in relationship to sin. All three of those appear in that one verse. And all those speak of different aspects of God's righteousness. 
You often see God's righteousness mentioned with justice. For instance, in Psalm 97.2, it says of God, Clouds and thick darkness surround him, and righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness, doing right, and justice, dealing with sin and without partiality, is the very foundation of God's throne. A.W. Strong, in his systematic theology, points out that righteousness demands that moral beings, angels and men, comply to God's moral standard. Justice, on the other hand, according to Strong, is the consequence of not conforming to God's moral perfection or righteousness. Strong goes on to note that righteousness of God reveals his love for holiness, while the justice of God reveals his hatred of sin. But they're just two sides of the same coin. Now let's look at God and see if the scriptures do in fact say he is righteous. Well, our text says he is, but let me just explain from a couple other texts. For instance, Psalm 36 6 says, your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like a great deep. John Gill, the Puritan Baptist theologian, said this of that text, the righteousness of God being his nature is infinite and immutable. The righteousness of angels and men in which they were created was mutable. Adam lost his and many angels lost theirs, but the righteousness of God is like a great mountain, high, firm, stable as they, and much more so. God's righteousness is perfect. It's pictured as a great mountain. And as you go through the scriptures, there's just myriads of texts. For instance, in, in Exodus 9.27, after one of the plagues, Pharaoh confesses his sin to Moses, and he refers to God as the Lord, the righteous one. In Psalm 11:7, David speaks of God as the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. In Psalm 92:15, it encourages us to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. And if you look in the New Testament, you see the Father being prayed to by Jesus in Jesus' high priestly prayer of John 17, verse 25, as the righteous Father. And Jesus himself in John chapter 2 verse 1 is referred to as Christ the righteous. And if you look in Isaiah and you look in the book of Acts, they have a certain designation of Jesus and he is designated as the righteous one. The righteous one. He is the righteous branch of David. He is the holy one of God. And so it's not difficult to prove that God is righteous. He is righteous of nature and essence. And remember, we said that an attribute of God is something God must possess, and if he doesn't, he ceases to be God. God must be right all the time. But how does God express his righteousness? And this leads us to our second point. Look at verse 17 in the text. The text says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. Isn't that great? God always does what is right. He always does what is right. When the text says he is righteous in all his deeds, it doesn't say he's righteous in some of his deeds or most of his deeds or the great majority of his deeds, but all his deeds, all his ways are righteous. In Isaiah chapter 45, God says this, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land, 
I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring the things that are upright. Then he goes on to say in verse 23, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and I will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. It's interesting, we read Philippians 2.10 and we think Paul made that up. Every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord, but it actually is a quotation taken from Isaiah 45. And why is it taken from Isaiah 45? Because it's true. Why? Because God said it. And God is righteous. When you look at God's righteousness, he always expresses righteousness to us in two different ways. In his words and in his deeds. And that's how he does it. And that is why that text says, this is my righteous word that every tongue will confess and every knee will bow. Psalm 19, 119, 37 and 38 says, Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. You have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and exceeding faithfulness. Psalm 119, 160, one of my favorite texts is, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. This is why Paul in Titus 1-2 says, God is the God who cannot lie. Why? Because everything he says is right, righteous, true. But God not only is righteous in what he says, he's also unrighteous in what he does. When God acts or allows things to happen, it's always right. God is steering the world according to his intended purposes. His providence is guiding all things. I mean, how did all those prophecies in the Old Testament all come true just like God said they would? It's because God is declaring the end from the beginning. And it will happen just as he says, exactly as he says, with no deviation. Why? Because he's God and his words and his deeds are righteous. And it's an error to think that God made a mistake, that he kind of blew it. But isn't that what we imply when we say things like, God, why are you doing this to me? Have you ever had one of those days? I was speaking at the seminary and Justin was going with me and we decided that um, we'd drive together because I was speaking at the chapel in front of all the professors and all the students. It was pretty scary. And so I go to print off my sermon and my computer explodes. The power supply has a big boom, smoke comes out. This is not good. So I've got all my stuff in the exploded computer. But I had taught in the text at one other time. And that text was embedded in my home computer. So I told Justin, let's go, we've got 20 minutes. So we drove home and I turned on my computer at home only to find that I had a fatal error. I thought, this is interesting. And you know what came to my mind? God, why are you doing this to me? And so being calm and being diligent, I thought, okay, we will fix it. So I sent an error report. They told me to download the service pack. I thought, oh, great, I have DSL. I'll download it. I'll load it on my computer and we'll be up and running and I'll have a pathetic set of notes to preach from that are underdeveloped, just data. So... 
it downloaded the stuff I needed to download, and then a little sign said, this will take two hours to perform. <laughs> and by that time, you know, I've got to drive to Panorama City, and I've got 20 minutes. So, Justin's looking at me, and he says, what are you going to do? And I said, it is obvious that God has done this. And so I'm going to preach without notes. So, I went there and fought of all the peers and the faculty and I preached. And I had studied hard and it turned out fine. But see, God wanted me to trust in him. And, and it worked out great. I even had a guy come up later and say, oh, it was the best message I heard in chapel all year. It's like, really? Maybe I shouldn't prepare anymore, you know? I don't know. But see, what's interesting is those kind of things happen to us and we're out of control. And you can do one of two things. Either insinuate that God is not righteous, he is not good, and he has put you into a place that is bad because he is bad, or he is righteous in all his deeds, he is in control, he nuked this computer, then nuked that computer so I would trust him and then not rely on my notes, not be worried about pleasing men, but just, I mean, I was trusting God. And that's where every preacher needs to be, not worrying about what the professors are going to think of him. And this is how God is. He works. And you know, we see people whose kids are deformed or they have problems or people who have died at a young age or people who are suffering from diseases or people who are hurting because of relationships or you know people with uh, cars that break down consistently or they lose their job or you know you know how it is here we all are welcome to the club but when god brings those things into our life this we know god is righteous perfectly and never makes a mistake all things are under his sovereign control and because he is all wise god is not just doing a degree of right but the best right and his ways cannot be improved upon it helps you when you're dealing with with the world, when you're seeing, you know, wars and all these things going on about you to realize God has a plan. God has a purpose. And even though we and our sin-cursed pea brains can't figure it out, that doesn't mean God doesn't know what he's doing. Isaiah says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. And the heavens are way up there. You remember the story of when God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And you remember what Abraham did? He came to God and he said this in Genesis 18.25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And you know what Abraham's thinking? Abraham's saying, hey, my nephew's down there. And all those other righteous people. But guess how many righteous people were actually down there? His nephew. You see, Abraham didn't realize the degree of wickedness that had happened in Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he kept, you know, saying, well, if there's 100 people, will you spare it? Well, you know, if there's 50, will you spare it? Oh, don't be angry with your servant. 25? How about 10? He said, yeah. I'd even do it for 10. 
And what happens? There isn't ten, there isn't five. There's Lot, his unbelieving wife who looked back and died, and two daughters who get their father drunk and commit incest. Pretty wicked. But from Abraham's perspective, he appeals to the righteousness of God. He knows God's going to do what's right, and it terrifies him to think that God might even do a little wrong, that he might kill some righteous people in a judgment of the wicked. But God didn't. And we often wonder about this. When we see people hurting, we see people suffering, you know, the typical atheist comment, you know, well, if there is a God, why is there so much wickedness and evil in the world? Because men are evil, not God. God created the world perfect. And men rebelled, not God. You ask yourself, well, well, why does he let it continue? Well, do you want him to judge you right now and cast you into the lake of fire? Is that what you want? Well, no. Okay. Then thank him for his mercy and grace. He's giving you an opportunity to believe. But see, the problem is with the whole idea of God's righteousness is we tend to think that righteousness is feeling good, don't we? You know, when we're in the backyard at night sitting in the hot tub. I don't have one, but (laughs) my brother in Washington does. And you're, you're floating around in the bubbles and you're feeling good. Things are right. You know, when you're sitting down to your favorite meal and you're stuffing your gizzard full of it, we tend to think things are right. They're good. Why? Because we're being pleasured. We're so quick to do what the world does. And as long as we feel good, as long as we're getting our flesh pampered, then it's right. But is that true? No, not necessarily. Not necessarily. As a matter of fact, the scriptures tell us quite the opposite. The scriptures tell us that we don't grow through indulging the flesh. We grow through trials, pain, exhortation, hurting, suffering, conviction, rebuke. Those things help us grow. That's why Jesus said what he did in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. You're thinking, blessed? Are you sure? Are you sure God blesses those and that those are happy who have actually been persecuted? He goes on to say, Blessed are you, the second time, when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Blessed? You know, when that coworker lies about you and when he attacks you and when he says false things about you because he knows you're a Christian and he despises you, I blessed? What should be our response? Get back at him? No, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We need to remember that all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That is a promise from the word of God. James says it this way in James chapter 1 verses 2 through 4. Consider it all joy. Now you're thinking when you're in the hot tub. No. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, really, 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing listen do you want to have faith do you want to have enduring faith do you want to be perfect do you want to be complete do you want to be lacking in nothing then you want trials because the only time you need faith is when you're under trial I mean, when God has supplied everything and everything's easy and everything's cozy and comfortable and you're feeling good and you've got lots of money and everything's... Who do you trust in? Yourself. People who float in the hot tub rarely think of God. But what happens when you're sick? What happens when... You lose your job. What happens when you have a great relationship conflict in your life? Then what do you do? You cling to God with white knuckles. And let me ask you this. Would God rather have you floating and forgetting about him in the hot tub or clinging to him desperately in pain and agony, trusting in him and relying upon his grace? Well, of course, the latter. Of course, it would be good to do that and to cling to God in the hot tub which is, you know, the tack I try and take. (laughs) But we need to remember that God brings things into our life and to us they may not be comfortable and they may not be fun, but you know what? God, who is perfectly righteous, knows exactly what you need. I mean, there are times in, in my life that I have gone through things that are so painful... I'm just asking myself, why is this happening? And, you know, theologically, I know, well, God must have a, quote, purpose in this. And I always think, it must be a purpose for somebody else. And then after you go through it, and after you go through all the agony, then you look back and say, you know, look at the things I learned during that time. Look how I learned how to trust God and rely upon God. And look, look at all the neat things that happened. And other people have been blessed through this and my suffering, and and all of those neat things you can't see in the midst of it. That's why we need to trust God, because he's always right. One of the most encouraging verses for me in the Bible is Hebrews 5.8, speaking of Christ. You know what it says? And though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things he suffered. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, learned obedience through the things he suffered. And when you read that, you think, well, I thought, you know, being God, he would be perfectly obedient. Well, he was. But being a man, remember, he laid aside the independent exercise of his divine attributes. He chose not to exercise his divine attributes except when it was the Father's will and he lived as a human among men. And when he suffered, he grew in obedience. Not that he ever disobeyed. Because he was tempted as always as we were, yet without sin. But he grew. And God's way was right even for Jesus. Thomas Watson said this, No vessel can be made of gold without fire. So it is impossible that we should be made vessels of honor unless we are melted and refined in the furnace of affliction. And so God is right. He is always right and never question his righteousness. But how do you live in light of a God who is righteous and righteous in all his ways? Let me just give you some applications. First, praise God for his righteousness. We saw that in verse 7. Shout joyfully. Look at your life last week and last month. Do you see your life as a life that overflows in thankfulness and praise to God because of who he is and rejoicing 
because of his righteousness. If not, you need to start doing that. Secondly, knowing God is righteous should help you to trust him. I mean, it's great to know that something is always going to happen, right? You know, you, you go to the faucet and you turn on the faucet because you know water's going to come out. Well, even though it's come out every time before, it's not certain. And one day it won't. One day it won't. But you know what? God is always reliable. He's like a roulette wheel that has all those black and red spots and then there's a green spot. And when God's word says... It's green. It's always green. And what happens as Christians, as you're out in the world, there's so many there's so many options and so many people telling you to go this way and that way. You just stick to the word of God and it's always green. You always receive blessing when God says you will if you do what God tells you to do. He always keeps his word because he's righteous. So the righteousness of God and knowing it, he is righteous helps us to trust him. And third... It should motivate us to live righteously. You know, we live in a very wicked world, and some, sometimes it's easy for Christians to kind of just stay about one notch above the world. So 50 years ago, Christians lived here, and unbelievers lived here. And then through the years, as unbelievers have gone here, Christians have moved there. And then they've gone down, and we've gone down, and they've gone down, and we've gone down. And we appease our conscience because we say, well, I'm better than an unbeliever. When the standard is not those people at the bottom who don't know God and don't love God and don't even profess to want to follow Jesus Christ, the standard is here on the word of God. And that is why Jesus, when he was speaking to the crowd in Matthew 5, 48, said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. We read a passage like that and we think, whoa, I mean, that's a little extreme. That's not a little extreme. That is all the way extreme. You think, well, that, yeah, that, that, that was before Christ died. That was in the Old Testament era. Okay, well then, you know, go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, where 1 Peter, or Peter says in that book, Be holy as God is holy. How holy is God? He is perfectly holy. So, all you have to be is perfect, absolutely holy, and you've got her licked. The problem is, is when you begin to live your life as a Christian, you realize you aren't holy. You blow it. You get angry. You worry. You fret. You're anxious. We lie. We steal. We're mean to people. We hold grudges against them. And we're sinning all the time. John says, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. And then in the next breath, he says in 1 John 2, 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. How could that be? Well, you need to realize this, that if you have really come to the place in your life where you realize you're a sinner and Jesus Christ is the only savior, that you cannot work your way to heaven, you cannot earn your way to heaven, you cannot do good deeds to get into heaven, that all your deeds are like filthy rags in his sight and you come to the place where you realize Christ died in the cross and took your sins upon him, that through faith in him you might have his righteousness placed upon you, then you can be saved. Then once you are saved, God gives you all the resources you need to live for him. Not to be saved, but because you are saved. 
You're saved by Christ and Christ alone. But once you are saved, you are saved to obedience. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. That's what we're supposed to do. Walk in them. But you say, Jack, I don't know. You know, I fail all the time. Common. But is it the pattern of your life pursuing righteousness? That's what you have to ask yourself. And if you see your life as a farce, if you're just one of those Christians who's Christians by profession, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, but you don't love God, you don't read His Word, you don't serve in church, you really like the moral quality of church, you know, the civility of going to church, maybe of telling other people you've gone to church, you like the accolades you get from it, but kind of being associated with that moral group of people. That's not being a Christian. Being a Christian is repenting of your sins, taking up your cross, and following after Jesus. And when you do that, God changes you, and he gives you all the resources you need to obey him perfectly. Now, of course, we don't, but it's not God's fault. That is why the scriptures say, No temptation has overcome you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation, every temptation provides a way of escape. So that you may be able to endure it. Why? Because he is righteous. And when he saves somebody, he gives them all they need. All the grace they need to walk according to his word. Hosea said it this way in Hosea 14.9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know. For the ways of the Lord are right. And the righteous will walk in them. But transgressors will stumble in them. How is your life doing? Are you shouting joyfully of God's righteousness? Are you trusting Him because He is right? Are you living righteously because He Himself, the righteous one, has called you to be righteous? Paul said it this way in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. And God never asks you to do anything that he does not give you the grace to perform. So I hope you leave here today with a commitment to praise God for his righteousness. A commitment to trust his word, to live by faith because of who he is. And just a zeal to obey him in every area of your life using his resources. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, I pray that right now in your heart as we pray in just a second, you give your life to the Lord God has made a sacrifice in his son so that you could be saved through his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. We're thankful for all that we learned. And Father, I just thank you for the patience of people here this morning as we look at your righteousness. It's a pretty complex doctrine. It has many aspects. And Father, I pray that if there is someone here who doesn't know you, who has never given their life to Jesus Christ, they might do so this morning. For those of us who do know you, may we leave here today with a commitment, a greater commitment to praise you for your righteousness, to trust you because you are righteous, and to be righteous for you are righteous. Father, we ask all these things in Christ's name because we know it's his will. Amen.